Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my friend who lives to go outside and play Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we discuss the often forgotten importance of observation and exploration for the purpose of suggesting patterns and forming hypotheses, which can later be refined and rigorously tested within the framework of our well-developed confirmatory machinery. Along the way, we also discuss Orlando road trips, our inner child, crappy glue, melted chocolate, leaning into the pitch, even a penny, 3x5 therapy cards, law and order, Easy Rider, 200 million digits of pi, the Illuminati, the first rule of confirmatory club, aircraft bullet holes, and Carl and Tom. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So for the first time in a while, I am looking forward to this week's appointment with Dr. Michelle. Okay, why is that? She has had us listing out things that we intend to do, making a schedule for when we're going to achieve it, Mm -hmm. and then marking them individually of doing what we actually proposed. I'm hearing the word we a lot. (laughs) We have a webpage. We do. And as I will tell Dr. Michelle, I think it has been a nice joint project that helped to bring us a little bit closer together. (laughs) So thank you. So we're really excited about this is we have been talking for two years about updating our webpage. We had a wonderful initial webpage that your student helped us with, Tessa. Bless her. Yes, she did. And it was beautiful and wonderful, but we didn't have a place for show notes. You can now go to quantitudepod.org. We have episodes and a way of submitting a message to us if you would like. Mm -hmm. But we've added a couple of things. As first, within the episodes page, we will now have show notes with any episode where if we raise a paper or if we identify some place or a resource that we'll be able to list it there. The one that I'm equally excited about is we now have a set of curated playlists. Mm -hmm. You all, by definition, are foolish enough to waste your time listening to us at this very moment. But if you want to share that foolishness in a class or you want to bother somebody else with it, we actually have organized episodes under different headings about data analysis or philosophy of science, validity, measurement, Mm -hmm. and then they're all searchable. You can look for keywords and identify specific episodes in the past. So anyway, we're very excited about that and we hope people may find that of some trivial interest in their own work. So now... For something completely different, Mm -hmm. we're going to have a wandering and unstructured talk about where (laughs) do ideas come from. Now, listeners, pulling back the sheet a little bit in how Greg and I do this, as you already know, maybe there's not as much organization goes into this as otherwise could. (laughs) But we'll kick back and forth over text some ideas for episodes, and we distill down to and saying, okay, Friday we're going to talk about this. I am dragging Greg kicking and screaming into this topic. Would that be a fair characterization of our communication thus far? Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That alone is going to be entertaining. But I want to be a supportive partner in this joint endeavor, Patrick. I want your dreams and hopes to become mine so that we can realize them together. You know, I can see you holding the three by five card as you read that, right? I thought that was out of the video frame. Okay. And the eye roll didn't help with that at all either. (laughs) 
I have always found it fascinating. Like way, way back in the day. I mean, when I was a kid, mm -hmm. you observe something and you wonder, why is that? Why does that happen? What underlies that? What motivated that person to do that? We have this architecture of data analysis, quantitative methods, this whole machine that we have. Can we use that in some way to rent a van, road trip down to Orlando, <laughs> And just have fun with data in discovery mode, right? Is so much of what we do as a science is incredibly importantly a priori. Mm -hmm. It is confirmatory. We draw on theories. We derive hypotheses. We design a study. We gather data. We fit statistical models to adjudicate the hypotheses. It's a very deductive process. Mm -hmm. Deductive is you go from the broad to the specific. That's a gross oversimplification, but you go from the broad to the specific. It is our bread and butter. It's why we exist. It is how we proceed as a science. But there's always been this question of, well, where does that very first step come from? Mm -hmm. The question. If we're going to make an a priori hypothesis drawn from theory, there's a step earlier. If you look up various sources for what is the scientific process or what are the steps in the scientific method... Some listings will start off with the hypothesis, and then some will start off with observation. But the ones that start off with the hypothesis, the little child in you should be saying, but where did that come from? And I think the things that we'll be talking about today are meant to sort of reactivate that inner child that wonders about things and doesn't know exactly what you're going to find, but wants to go out there and poke at it anyway. An acronym that I sometimes will use for an undergrad, and again, just a gross over simplification. If you're a PhD philosopher of science, I actually would suggest you just turn us off right now. <laughs> All right. Wait, download it first. Okay. Yeah. But then just, then just turn it off. <laughs> and then just go ahead and turn it off. Yeah. The acronym OPEM, open, mm -hmm. observe, predict, explain, manipulate. It's an initial structure of thinking about the scientific method. You observe the world around you. Mm -hmm. Then you predict, oh, I see this comes up, that sets in the evening. It comes up in the morning, sets in the evening. I can predict that. You explain it. Ah, a chariot races the sun across the mm -hmm. sky, right? The old Greek <laughs> mythology. Yeah. And then in some sciences, if you're able, you manipulate. Mm -hmm. That opening gambit, though, is you observe right? You, you watch the world around you. Well, what are some things we can do in our own work where we can go to the data and just play? We're going to go out on the beach. We're going to lather up with 100 SPF, right? You and I have been at the beach together and we show up on radar in the local airport. What can we do to just play and to say, huh, I didn't know that. You had made an observation a couple of weeks ago about when you and I were teaching our workshop and someone had such a strong visceral reaction to the idea of exploring your data a little bit to try to understand some things that are going on. We really want to say this is a very good thing and maybe help people to unlock that childlike mindset that we mentioned previously. But I thought a silly way to start is thinking about over history accidental discoveries. <laughs> The post-it note. <laughs> the post-it note was an abject failure in to develop a new glue. Mm -hmm. It would stick. 
but then you could just pull it right off. It was a total fail until somebody figured out, hey, we could do this with it. And that brought actually the entire structure to my own life. I live <laughs> on post-it notes. <laughs> you do. Numbered and lettered, and you've got these this whole hierarchy of post-its. That's exactly right. But a total fail, a total yeah. accidental discovery. The microwave is an example of one of those, right? I only vaguely remember something about the origins of the microwave, but I remember that some guy, this was probably around World War II, the 40s or so. That's right, because they were working on radar for aircraft detection. Okay, well, you would know. That's an interest of yours, and so it becomes an interest of mine so that we could join... I see the card! You know what you need is a sticky note on your monitor. (laughs) If you put it right under the camera, uh-huh. it can look like you're looking me in the eye while mm-hmm. you read. Pro tip from Patrick Kern on how to fake sincerity and interest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I just remember something about a chocolate bar melting in some guy's pocket, right? He was working on something else, and then he had a, <laughs> a pocket full of wet chocolate. It's like, hey, wait a minute. That's not a bad idea. What they didn't say is the chocolate bar is ah, it melted. It's like, yeah, so did his testicles. <laughs> But there are a whole string of these really fun ones, right? Uh, Velcro. The guy was a hiker, and he would get burrs on his woolly socks. Right. And he would get back and have to pull them off, and he had an epiphany. I like the Viagra. (laughs) Viagra was actually a medication for angina, and then they found this byproduct. Mm Mm-hmm. But some are more serious. So penicillin was discovered when Fleming went out of town and came back and the bacteria hadn't grown in the Petri dishes in which there was mold. Right. So there are all these really interesting accidental discoveries. There are a lot that we forget about sometimes within our neck of the woods as well, whether that be social sciences, health sciences. Yeah. In my neck of the woods, Piaget, the developmental stages of Piaget were initially inspired by him observing his own kids right and realizing that oh this younger one can't do this this older one can do this and that became this huge area of study in theoretical development mary ainsworth one of the core developers of attachment theory was working on a research project in uganda and was watching mothers interact with their infants Mm -hmm. And mentally started categorizing them into group A and group B and group C. And attachment theory came out of that. I like the stuff at the other end of life as well, right? Was it Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? She is known for what she came up with as the five stages of grief. Yeah, exactly. I think people have sort of poked at that a little bit, maybe expanded it, refined it, and so forth. But I believe that came out of tons of conversations with people who were going through those kinds of things at the end of life. You make a really good point. Ainsworth and Piaget and Kubler-Ross As they became a focus of more rigorous and structured study, Mm -hmm. that then people began to find limitations with them. They weren't universal. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a wonderful book about this and did describe these as universal processes. Well, as they became more formally studied, they weren't universal. It depends. For example, my five stages are denial, anger, 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 and anger. (laughs) 
So technically, I still have five stages. In spite of our three years of therapy together. I like baseball and I know I torture analogies, but I always think about it like hitting a ball into play. Mm -hmm. I was never particularly good at playing baseball. And so the coach would always say, just make contact. Well, his first recommendation was lean into the pitch and just take your base. It's Stanton in the back. And immediately gets thrown out of the game. The benches are clearing. I think I had more hit by pitches than any kid on the team. His first recommendation was, Curran, take one for the team. His uh-huh. second one was just make contact. Yeah. And what that was is, let's just see what happens. Hit it and play. Two pitch, a little pop-up, Castro out, second baseman, and it drops. And two runs are going to score, and the A's are going to win it. Unbelievable. Just make contact, and then we'll play it out. I'm not really patient when people really go after Piaget because he was just making contact. And it's very easy to talk about these in the context of things that feel anthropological, sitting yourself among the people that you wish to study. And you and I are in no way qualitative methodologists. We don't know enough to say anything intelligent about qualitative methodologies. Not that that would stop us from saying stuff, right? To be clear. And people would point that out on Twitter. (laughs) They would and send us DMs and other nasty grams. Again, we are making zero statement about the confirmatory mode that our science exists in right now. That's why we exist. That's how we Mm -hmm. progress. I just want to be unambiguously clear about that. But it goes back to that story we raised about the student just being fundamentally uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in dropping two items and rerunning the EFA because it goes against everything she was taught. What I just miss, I think, in our field is that mindset that you don't have to have a theory and an a priori hypothesis to do really important novel generative work. We have this opportunity to really go out in the backyard and play. I did my grad work at Arizona State University 122 years ago. And there was a social psychologist there at the time, and he spent his whole career there, but his name was Bob Cialdini. Mm -hmm. All right, you ready for this? Yeah. This will be in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Ah! I have the honor of taking a class from him, and he is absolutely remarkable. He actually wrote a very famous book. If you want to manipulate people, it's a remarkable text. The title is just called Influence. Mm -hmm. I cannot recommend this more highly enough. It's a book that is dedicated to bringing in psychological principles to explain how people manipulate you, how you are influenced. This entire body of work, and he told this story very briefly. He was in his house. He was sitting on the couch. Mm -hmm. Somebody rang the doorbell and was going door to door collecting money. And Bob said in the story, he went to open the door and tell the person, I'm sorry, I can't donate as I already give through work. Long story short, he ended up giving her $20. (laughs) (laughs) closed the door and went and sat on the couch. And he said, what the hell just happened? Mm -hmm. He went to the door with the intent of not giving money and he closed the door having given her $20. It started an entire career of his 
in how does one person influence another? And what he found was she gave the spiel, and at the very end, she said, even a penny helps. Hmm. You would have to look another person in the face and say, I am not going to give you a penny. Yeah. He opened his wallet and gave her a $20 bill. He started working with the Red Cross. They had an experimental design. Some people said even a penny helps. Some people didn't say that. They showed that having that one line led to a significant increase in the amount that was collected. And he had 20 or 30 year research career then that came off of that one instance. It wasn't a theory. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a hypothesis. It wasn't an a priori test with a known p-value. It was a young woman collecting from door to door. As Greg so aptly points out, we'd be pretty hard-pressed to find two people who know less about qualitative research methods than we do. And we're not even going to pretend to go into that. There's a whole field that does this kind of work, of qualitative work, mixed methods work, focus groups, observations, thematic analyses. There's an entire field of qualitative data analysis out there that we should loop somebody in to talk about here who does know something because it's absolutely fascinating work. And to be clear, you and I have a tremendous respect for that. Absolutely. A lot of times people will set up some kind of sharks in the jets about this whole qualitative quantitative thing. I think that it is not only important, I think it's essential work. I think it can be done extraordinarily well, and I think it informs a lot of the things that we do. It often is the hitting the ball into play before some of the things that we wind up doing. And I think in so many ways, it's a a lot harder than some of the stuff that we do. Oh, (laughs) dude. Our stuff? X prime X inverse, X prime Y, you get a couple of standard errors and you look for some value under 05 and we're done. Uh I've worked with some qualitative researchers and our job is way easier. So we're not going to focus on something we know nothing about. Really? And instead talk about something that we know mostly nothing about. Like 10%? Sure. We'll okay. go with that. That's charitable. Five percent each. Okay. <laughs> you can add up percents, can't you? <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to Google that. What I'd like to puzzle through a little bit is, okay, so if we take a data analytic approach, that we have empirical data, and indeed, maybe even narrow the conversation a little bit to, we have existing data. Yes. You have a student. You have an undergrad. Yourself. You have access to existing data, public access data. You have your advisor's data. Whatever it is, what can we do to just go out in the backyard and play, right? Do you remember that when you were a kid? Is Mom, can I go play? I just want to go out and play. Let's talk about just going out back and playing when we have data. What I will say, just seed this conversation, is there are challenges with what we're going to describe. There are challenges in a number of ways, right? First of all, if you're dealing with existing data, as we talked about in a prior episode, you didn't make the choices for the variables that are there. You got what you got. So sometimes it's a very constrained framework. We know this. Another thing that is a strike against this or a challenge is that oftentimes our professional structure doesn't seem to reward this kind of behavior, right? The idea of playing. You go into this with some challenges ahead of time for sure. On the other side of that, though, the Institute of Education Sciences actually has a 
fundable goal, a whole mechanism dedicated to exploration. And I think that actually shows a lot of foresight on their part as to where ideas actually come from. So this is an IES Goal 1 Exploration. This says, research supported under the exploration goal identifies, one, malleable factors that are associated with education outcomes for students, and two, factors and conditions that may mediate or moderate the relations between malleable factors and student outcomes. The identification is to be done through the analysis of data collected by the project or secondary or the meta-analysis of research studies, right? So the idea is essentially that you are poking around, trying to find potential relations, and that later on, see whether or not those things hold up upon maybe a more structured scrutiny. I love that IES realizes that some of the best ideas come from you just poking around. And communicating that to students, that's what I am excited (laughs) about and thinking about is, yeah, you got to do your chores, Mm -hmm. but yeah, you can go outside and play too, right? These two things live together. Where do those questions come from? I saw a talk at National Institutes of Health from a very senior scientist. He said something along the lines of, NIH will fund your project if you can tell them what the results are going to be. (laughs) I thought that was a wonderful statement. It's about the predictability, about hypotheses. Again, I support that. And that is a good positive thing in deriving hypotheses from theory and conducting a priori tests. But he had this really salient point. We'll give you money if you can tell us what the results are going to be. Yeah. It brings us to John Tukey, who is one of these kind of renaissance people, polymath, Mm -hmm. just someone who is very good at many different things. John Tukey wrote over decades, and there are collected works of John Tukey as I have on my bookshelf at campus. I assume it's still there. I haven't been in my office in like two years. (laughs) Four or five volumes of collected writings of John Tukey. And if you haven't read John Tukey, I would recommend that you do for two reasons. One is he's one of the most important thinkers in quantitative methods, among many other areas. He contributed to many, many areas of scientific inquiry. But also, he's just this wonderful, colloquial, engaging writer. Like, you laugh out loud sometimes at things that he has written. He'll use all caps. He'll use exclamation points. He'll tell a story about something. He's incredibly engaging. Yeah. He is often identified as the founder of what has become to be known as exploratory data analysis, or EDA. So he's coming out of the 50s and 60s. There was a big emphasis on the Fisherian legacy, Neiman Mm -hmm. Pearson, alpha levels, type 1, type 2 error. I mean, that was like a huge amount of work was going on in the 50s, 60s, 70s of really focusing on an inferential frequentist hypothesis testing framework. And he never undermined that. He never said we shouldn't be doing this. But what he did say is we can complement this. We can augment this. His big thing was EDA and then what he called confirmatory data analysis, CDA, lived together. You can't have one without the other. It was symbiotic. He said that there are three core foundations that underlie EDA. One is an attitude. Mm -hmm. One is flexibility. 
and one is a stack of graph paper. (laughs) The biggest issue that he pushed with EDA was that first one, and that was an attitude. Yeah. Exploratory data analysis is not a bulleted list of techniques. It is an attitude. There was something that he said about EDA. Students who have never been exposed to confirmatory data analysis have a much easier time with exploratory data analysis than people who have been exposed to confirmatory. And I think that goes with the idea that this is a mindset. This is a way of thinking about the world, a way of approaching the world. And when you get so locked into the confirmatory side, it's even hard to think about things from an exploratory perspective. So I love that he acknowledged that. He kind of likened it to a foreign language. You haven't been... And he used the word in one paper, indoctrinated into the confirmatory perspective. It was easier to teach, easier to appreciate. And -hmm. again, it goes back to my broader point I alluded to earlier is I would love to help students earlier in their training appreciate that there are two ways of doing this that are complementary to one another. He wrote over and over again is that these two have to live together. He said that the line of reasoning that we are taught is question, design, collection, analysis, and conclusion, Mm -hmm. right? And that's just it. What is your theory? What is your hypothesis? How do you design the study? How do you gather the data? How do you test the hypothesis? And he said, but what we have to do is go back and really focus on the question. Where does that question come from? He somewhat critically talks about how confirmatory data framework is you're putting a criminal on trial. Mm -hmm. That's a very common analogy that's used. And I've used that before on prior discussions as we're making a principled argument to the jury. You're trying to convince a readership based on data. He has a wonderful line that he says, but how can you put an undetected criminal on trial? You can only put a criminal on trial who's been caught. Mm -hmm. What about all the criminals who have not been caught? And I love that twist on the analogy is what EDA is trying to do is to find the undetected criminals who can then be put on trial. So you remember Law & Order? I don't. I never watched an episode. Okay. Um, Turn on your TV now. (laughs) (laughs) You will find it. But it is exactly the analogy that I think about in this. The original Law & Order show was divided into two parts, where the first part was all the detective work, all the things that went into trying to look at patterns and pieces of information, try to come to some conclusions. And then the second half of the show took place in the courtroom and with the characters who were trying to prosecute it. And for me, that's a nice metaphor for what goes on in the way that exploratory and confirmatory go together. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. The first part is about looking for patterns, wondering if they're reasonable, right? You can find patterns that really could be explained in a variety of different ways. So the first part is all about looking for those patterns, and the second part is about convincing people that those patterns point to one particular conclusion. I like that breakdown. One thing I love about Tukey is he had such a turn of phrase. He talked about we need to develop a strict rule structure that consists of few strict rules. He had this really nice 
discussion about how we have to break our blind loyalty to textbooks, Hmm. that textbooks encapsulate authority, that this is the final arbiter of what students learn. At the time, an EDA perspective was not represented in textbooks. Textbooks is the mechanism in which students are learning the craft. Therefore, students are not getting this flexible attitude of exploration through the textbooks. One of his lines that I most like is, much useful work can be conducted without the need to invoke probability. Hmm. And I think that's a really lovely thought. So many things we talk about revolve around alpha and beta and one minus beta. He's like, let's not look at probability at all. Initially, Tukey is a character who really, not in a bad way, plays both ends of the spectrum. Right? So you've got, on the one hand, the guy who's riding his motorcycle shirtless. That's one side of him. But the other side is the side that actually probably more people out there know him from, and that is from Tukey's Test. The idea that we have to control for multiplicity, that when we test many things, the chance that some of them will elevate to statistical significance is greater when we're doing more of these tests. So he is completely aware of the issues that arise from exploration, but he was so in favor of that exploration. Go ahead, find some things And then later, we will go ahead and subject them to tests, to rigorous tests. But you have to have just as much freedom to try to unearth those possibilities. But the idea of looking for patterns in things and trying to figure out whether those patterns are meaningful or whether they are just sort of, what's the word? Is it pareidolia? Where you think you see patterns in things, but they're not real patterns. Is that a term that's familiar to you? It is not. Is there a term for making up words just to mess with me? (laughs) I was sorting through the first 200 million digits of pi, and you know what I found? Your birth date occurs three times. Mine occurs five times. What does that mean, Patrick? You have way too much time (laughs) on your hands. I was going with Illuminati confirmed or something more dramatic. Your answer means that you don't think that's a real thing. Maybe it's just a random phenomenon that occurred. This is what we have to do when we go through data. We look for patterns, and they are patterns because they're meaningful to us, because we bring some frame of reference that defines what an actual pattern is. Any sequence of heads and tails flips is a pattern. So we look through data and we try to find patterns And those are patterns that resonate with us in the context of things that we believe or things that we can start to make sense of or things that we can start to offer simpler explanations for. You and I, even though we tend to operate in primarily a confirmatory world, you and I have a ton of tools at our disposal that are extremely exploratory and we use them very often. And another one of Tukey's turn of the phrases that I loved is confirmation is repetition. Hmm. This very notion of looking for patterns from an exploratory standpoint, but that to confirm that, you need to replicate. He was literally talking about replication in terms of repetition, Mm -hmm. is then that begins to build an argument for confirmation. So that is completely consistent with Tukey's perspective. And when you and I taught our workshop, one of the techniques that we talked about 
about there was principal components analysis. And although the workshop was specifically about measurement and a lot about factor models, we also talked about the idea of seeing whether or not data actually congeal around these things that you might be able to bring meaning to using whatever your frame of reference is. So I think of principal components analysis as a great example of something that can help us to explore patterns in our data. And as we talked about in the principal components episode, principal components is often used in modern day applications to take a very large amount of information to distill it down to a smaller amount of information so that you can take it to machine learning like applications mm-hmm. to algorithmically look at patterns. Yeah, there's a topic we know a lot about. <laughs> I'll add it to the list. Where's my yellow sticky? It involves machines and 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 learning and stuff. The system goes online on August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. Principal components analysis explores your data specifically in the context of patterns of correlations and making linear composites. When you move into machine learning, which again is a huge bucket that has lots of things in it, but if you think about things like classification and regression trees, the idea that you're looking for combinations of your variables that are associated with particular outcomes... And those combinations are things that are suggested by your data. You might try to put specific mechanisms in place for you to avoid overfitting and maybe making a little bit too much out of it. But fundamentally, it is using the patterns in your data to try to explain what's going on. And I love that. I'll be back. And I'm sorry to keep going back to Tukey, but again, he talked about pattern recognition as well as talking about the importance of finding these patterns. And then as you highlight, he was also a card-carrying member of the Confirmatory Club. Oh, yes. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Oh, hardcore. Yeah. And saying once you found these observationally from an exploratory mode, then confirming these in a frequentist inferential a priori way was the critical next step. It's interesting that that part of the pendulum is swinging back with machine learning in terms of exploration, but there are also many ways that are not machine learning based that we can take our existing data and just play with it, graph it, plot it, subset it, because there's not this void between confirmatory and high-end machine learning. Mm -hmm. I start getting tired of people saying, well, the Netflix model. Right. (laughs) There is no such thing statistically as a Netflix model. We don't have 10 million data points to determine that if I like the good, bad, and the ugly, I'm probably going to like fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more. But what we're talking about here is you have 300 observations Mm -hmm. or you have several independent data sets that you could merge into one to look at 
subsets of cases or data smoothers or principal components where you build a measurement model that you didn't anticipate existing. When I talk to students, I think they see out beyond the horizon these pattern recognitions, subset regressions, learning trees, but they see that as something that you need a million cases. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're in part arguing here is more in the ghost of Tukey. You can have 200 observations. And you can look at these data from an EDA-like way, because never forget Tukey's first tenet, which is attitude. You know, another technique that I like a lot that I think of as exploratory is cluster analysis, good old-fashioned cluster analysis, where you imagine all of your data points whether they're on a sheet of paper in two dimensions or they're floating in a three-dimensional space or, heck, a p-dimensional space. The idea of looking at that, walking around it and saying, you know, these two points over here are really close to each other. Maybe we can think of them as belonging to some group, some cluster. And you know what? These points over here are kind of close. Let me put those two together as well. The idea of exploring the patterns of proximity in your data and seeing whether or not, A, you can group them in any kind of way, and B, ultimately whether or not there's meaning associated with those groupings. I love that as a technique. And it's that part B that I think is so much fun. Mm -hmm. Whether it be cluster analysis and old school K-means clustering and their centroid methods and they're very mm -hmm. algorithmically based and very, very clever in how they're done. Mm -hmm. And then the next generation of those are variations in mixture models and latent profile yeah. analysis and latent class analysis. There's a whole architecture out there. We have an episode on that that involves Sir Mix-a-Lot, I think. <laughs> Baby got back. That's right. <laughs> the step A is, huh, these observations seem to kind of want to hang out together, and these observations kind of want to hang out together, and we can make these two clusters. Okay, cool. We can do that. Step B is... Go look at the other information that you have on those yeah. to see, do they differ in other kinds of characteristics? It's like, oh, I didn't know. Look at this. They have these characteristics or that characteristic. But here's another thing. Do that with variables that you may have in the data file. But are there extant data that you might have about those that mm -hmm. could also be brought to bear? Again, 122 years ago when I was in grad school, I was really interested in resilience. That is kids that were exposed to every risk factor that would lead them to poor school performance, drug and alcohol use, aggression and delinquency, but they were flourishing. And I remember a very long time ago, I subset out kids who were children of parents who were diagnosed with alcoholism, whose parents were actively drinking, whose parents had an antisocial personality diagnosis or a major affective disorder diagnosis. I pulled those kids and then I subsetted just manually in a do-if-then loop those kids who fell under those risk factors but were not reporting drug use themselves, who were not reporting depression and anxiety themselves. And I narrowed it down to eight or ten kids and I went and I pulled 
pulled their files from the file cabinet, because mm-hmm. keep in mind, this was 122 <laughs> years ago, mm-hmm. and just looked at the interviewer's notes on these kids. Mm-hmm. Is there something about them that is not even necessarily numerically coded into the data file, but why are these kids succeeding when yeah. for every reason they shouldn't be? That's a great example. And I think one of the most powerful forms of exploratory processes that we have, it's rooted in the idea that it depends. It is essentially what machine learning is trying to do in the sense of finding interesting combinations of variables that help you to differentiate among subgroups. What makes these people unusual? Here are these characteristics that set them apart jointly. We go into so many of these things looking for that one-size-fits-all model. But when you have access to these large data sets, you can say, well, what if I divide my kids up into those who have identified as male, those who have identified as female? Is that a meaningful thing to do? Is that useful? Are the findings here different across those groups? What if I divide those further based on some other meaningful characteristics, whether or not they come from a two-parent household or a one-parent household? You can start to drill down and understand the patterns of things, even if you don't have a priori hypotheses. And you know what? What you might think you find in the end could absolutely be just some random phenomenon, something that is particular to the vagaries of the data that you have. But you won't know that unless you start poking around in there, unless you start, as you say, subsetting and drilling down and seeing whether or not certain patterns appear to emerge that you can subject to further testing later. Why, yes, I do have an anecdote about that that involves an airplane. (laughs) Thank you for asking. Yes, it is about this time in every episode when... (laughs) This is not apocryphal. You can actually find photos of this online. Mm -hmm. During World War II, B-17s, which were the high-altitude bomber at the time, would come back from missions, and there was an incredibly high loss of planes. I mean, it was terrifying of how many aircraft they were losing. They wanted to put armor on the aircraft, but you Mm -hmm. can't armor the entire aircraft because it's too heavy to take off. So some of the guys in the shop put a silhouette of the plane, top, bottom, left, right. And over time, they put little red X's where bullet holes appeared on the aircraft that landed. Over a matter of weeks, they covered these silhouettes with little red X's. And then where did they put the armor? Well, they put the armor where the little red X's were not. Mm-hmm. And the reason was those were the planes that didn't come back. It was looking for that pattern. It was looking to the data. It was looking at the empirical distribution of bullet holes. The aircraft that returned where there was a bullet hole meant that it was able to return with that bullet hole. It was the ones that didn't that were the important ones. And I just love that as an anecdote of looking for these patterns. That's Mm -hmm. not dissimilar to me trying to handpick the kids who are flourishing when for every reason they shouldn't have. There is a direct line in parallel analogy of those are almost the aircraft coming back that are riddled with bullet holes, but land safely. After I've taken a moment to bask in the beauty of your anecdote, I'd like to return back for just a moment to something that you mentioned earlier, and that is 
mixture models. We had a whole episode, as you said, that delved into mixture models. So that's fine. One thing that we said earlier back in a factor analysis episode, and we also reiterated it in our mixture episode, is that mixture models were intended to be used in a very confirmatory kind of way. The statistics of them are dependent upon you having some a priori belief about the number of classes and assessing whether or not that's the case. However, how do people use it in practice? The way people often use it, and in fact, it's a whole <laughs> it's a whole literature, has to do with class enumeration, where you use this technique that was designed to be confirmatory, and you ask yourself things like, well, which one fits better? One class, two class, three class, four class, five class, and you try these different things. You identify through some criteria, which are themselves not without controversy, but you identify through some criteria which number of classes you are going to choose, and then you try to bring meaning to what those classes represent. And that's an example where we think about having methods that are technically in one kind of camp, but the way they're practiced often has that exploratory flavor to it. And when you and I were talking about factor analysis, what we said was exploratory factor analysis isn't so exploratory confirmatory factor analysis isn't so confirmatory, discuss the idea that, first of all, we can lay these out on a continuum, but most of the stuff exists in the middle there somewhere. So I would take that one step further and not just say that we use confirmatory things in exploratory ways and exploratory things in confirmatory ways, but I would take that one step further and maybe say maybe exploratory techniques and confirmatory techniques aren't that different. And I don't mean that in practice per se. I mean actually at their very core. And for me, it comes back down to the idea of patterns and randomness. So if you think about in an exploratory data type technique, what you're in essence, trying to look for our patterns in the data. And what I said earlier was that patterns are only patterns to the extent that you have some preconceived overlay of what constitutes a pattern. So I look at the digits of pi and something pops at you, but something only pops at you because you have that framework. In other words, you go into it with an expectation of randomness, and then you see something that looks like it's non-random. So you have this internal meter that tries to gauge whether or not something is so different from what you would expect randomly for you to say, hmm, that's something that might be worthy of further attention. So in exploratory data analysis, what I would say is a lot of what we do is try to identify something that looks like it deviates from randomness. And that's what led us to identify that as a pattern. In confirmatory, we also try to compare something to what we would expect to occur under randomness. It's just that it's a pattern that we come to the table with a priori. So I would say in exploratory data analysis and confirmatory data analysis, it really is comparing some pattern against randomness. It's just that in exploratory, we're not really caught up in p-values. We're caught up in trying to identify those patterns that distinguish themselves from randomness through our eyes. Whereas in confirmatory, we're trying to essentially attach a p-value or some assessment using randomness as a frame of reference to see whether or not the pattern that we are testing that we came up with a priori has a statistically significant amount of misfit compared to that random framework. So I think exploratory and confirmatory actually aren't that different. And I think that's a really 
nice modern conceptualization of Tukey's belief that these two live together, Mm -hmm. that they are intimately linked. So much of his early work was fighting against the indoctrination of textbooks that this is the only way that it can be done. And saying, whoa, 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 I'm one of the leaders in the field of confirmatory analysis and probabilistic inference, Mm -hmm. but there's also this other thing at the same time and how it can be used. Tying back also to that notion that exploration and induction is an attitude, we can't give a laundry list of things that you can do to explore your data, right? As Tukey said over and over again, EDA is not a set of techniques. And people would write and say, here are the five methods of EDA. And Tukey really pushed back on that, is it is not a set of methods. It's a mindset. It's a philosophy. It's an attitude. And so in that way, think about all the fun ways that you could play with your data. Greg Gray's cluster analysis, K-means cluster analysis, mixture modeling, Think about a smoother within a bivariate data plot. I love these. And some in programs, they have dynamic smoothers. So picture a simple XY bivariate data plot. Well, a smoother is it runs sometimes what's called a kernel density or a low S line, but you can move the bar up and down and it makes it increasingly and less sensitive to the characteristics of the data. Hmm. And instead of fitting a line to a bivariate plot, which is a regression coefficient or a correlation coefficient, you allow the data to govern it Hmm. and you move that smoother up and down and it bends as it goes through the data. Well, there's some unexpected nonlinearity that might hold. And maybe a nonlinearity that only holds within one part of that plot. Picture in your mind's eye a line that has some positive increasing slope. And then at one point in the distribution, it actually dips down a little bit and then dips back up. Well, you can see that in these dynamic smoothers. I love getting residuals. Get case-based estimates of residuals. You can get these in regression. You can get these in SEM. You can get residuals at the level of the observation, but you can also get residuals at the level of the covariance matrix. Mm -hmm. Where is your model doing a good job in replicating variances and covariances and means? And where's your model doing a poor job? Mm -hmm. Read them out, plot them, do box plots, do histograms. We've actually written a couple of papers, fit a growth model and get individual estimates of the starting point and rate of change. Mm -hmm. This is another one where we teach it one way and then we criticize students for explaining (laughs) it back to us in the way that we teach it. Mm -hmm. I I love this job. I just love it. Mm -hmm. I myself teach growth modeling as each individual has a starting point and each individual has a rate of change. No, they don't. Mm -hmm. Not in an MLM or an SEM growth model. Those don't exist in the estimation of the model. That's right. We get the variances of the intercepts. We get the variances of the slopes and the means and the covariance between the two. But in the mechanism, that fits those growth models, those individual trajectories never exist. Mm 
-hmm. Now we can use the parameters from the model to obtain an estimate of those. We can get empirical Bayes estimates. We can get ordinary least squares estimates. But get your intercepts and slopes and go look at them. We can make what Ragosa called spaghetti plots mm-hmm. because it looks like you drop a box of spaghetti on the floor. Get all those individual trajectories. Identify half a dozen that are not like the others, right? It's just we never get out of Sesame Street. One mm-hmm. of these things is not <laughs> like the other. One of these things is not like the others. Flag the six observations that seem to be not playing well with the others and go look at their data. All of these are in the spirit of Tukey's attitude is, dude, you've got an hour before dinner. Go outside and play. So now think about the assignments that you give to your students, right? I assume that in a lot of your classes, you will have projects that they will do, data sets from which they will try models of different types. I mean, it's very common that in methodological courses, especially upper level methodological courses, that students will have to get their hands dirty, even though the analyses that we are typically teaching students in those classes fall much more in a very structured and confirmatory type of framework, I think it's a nice little addendum to ask people, what did you learn? What did you find in the data that you didn't expect? What if you poke around a little bit? Where are you finding maybe that this model isn't working quite well? Or where is there some unexpected relation? I think there are things that we can do in our own classes that try to teach students along the way, in parallel with the confirmatory things, ways to continue to think like a kid, to look for things that are surprising rather than always locking into these confirmatory mindsets. In the spirit of me being a congenital hypocrite, I have never done that. Okay. Everything is a priori. Everything are the tests. Show me the LRTs. Show Mm -hmm. me the chi-square difference tests. Adjust for multiple testing. I will occasionally build in an Easter egg. Right. (laughs) If I'm doing outlier analysis, you got to find the aberrant case. But I'm as guilty as anyone. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, there are two books that are required reading if you're going into any field of science, especially in academia. Mm -hmm. The first is called Straight Man by Richard Russo. (laughs) This Uh is one of the funniest books I've ever read in my life. It is laugh out loud. You will lay in bed next to your partner and laugh and wake them up. Mm -hmm. And it is a book about academics. It is required reading for anyone going into academia. The other is Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. It's hard to raise this when we're looking at, we've already recorded 90 minutes that are going to have to be cut down to 55 minutes, and saying, oh, I want to make a quick comment about Thomas Kuhn is bad. We could have an entire episode talking about this. I think this is one of the most important books in our field in thinking about the purpose of science, the progress of science. He is one who early on coined the notion of a paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. I have a collected letters of correspondence between Thomas Kuhn and Karl Popper, and it is absolutely fascinating to hear these two guys go back and forth about philosophy of science issues. Kuhn is not in your backyard or in Frank's backyard, though. You have Popper, but not Kuhn. Is that correct? No, he's next to Kuhn. Is next to Popper. Kuhn. Okay. Oh, they nice. just bicker endlessly. Yeah, I put them together so that they could keep each other company. That's cute. Oh, I'm going to bed at night, and I just hear bicker, bicker, bicker as they. Tom, they, Carl, keep it down. Some of us have to get up in the morning. <laughs> Kuhn, very briefly, he literally starts with, 
a discipline starts with facts, starts with observations. And then he has this wonderful description of when you start with facts and begin to develop a discipline, then a dominant paradigm arises. So he talks about these paradigms. And it's indoctrinated into journals and into professional societies and into curricula, right? I mean, again, as if you do this stuff for a living, I, I can't recommend this book more strongly as he talks about the development of these disciplines. And then out of that, what he calls a normal science develops. And he talks about how people can make careers out of what he refers to as mopping up. So there are these facts, a paradigm, (laughs) there are these unresolved issues, and he talks about mopping up. But then the pivot comes that I love is anomalies start to arise. So as your science gets better and better and knows more and more about itself, there are little things that start to pop up that can't be explained by that dominant paradigm. And he talks Mm -hmm. about those as anomalies. And it starts putting pressure on the paradigm because these little things are not consistent with the paradigm. And then he talks about how they can be ignored, but at some point they can't be ignored. Well, then they can be explained away. Well, at some point they can't be explained away. And it puts pressure and pressure and pressure. And he talks about crisis as the essential tension of science, right? Is that these anomalies induce crisis, crisis induces this tension. And then at some point there is, and the term he uses is the paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. The paradigm can't account for the anomaly anymore. And a new paradigm is developed. And Everything we do, you can follow this arc. And of course, it doesn't apply to everything. And of course, there are certain disciplines this applies better to. But it is what we do. And one of my favorite lines of him is, Normal science seeks to discover what is known in advance. I love that line, seeks to discover what is known in advance. And what he argues for is identifying these anomalies and respecting these anomalies. It just is a nice philosophical wrapper, I think, to all of Mm -hmm. this, is how these things naturally live together. And that we should just be aware of it and embrace it and encourage it in our students. Right? That's one of the things that I think is so important. You and I are too old a dog to teach too terribly new a trick. That's evident in you keep holding up three by five cards to give me affirmations. Conveying to our students this love of play. Mm -hmm. Go into the plate with, okay, Curran, just make contact and let's see what happens. All right, everybody. So go out there and play. We hope this has been a useful conversation to complement some of the deeper methodological stuff, the weeds that we sometimes get into, just to remind you to go out there and play. I think it's something we don't do enough of. Thank you, everyone. We so appreciate you taking your incredibly limited time to squander it with us. Mm -hmm. Take care, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week. And Patrick, I have appreciated your positive contributions to this entire endeavor and look forward to working with you further. I can't read that one. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to get things to torture their kids in the car. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our new and improved website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch from Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. 
You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast planned by the equivalent of a thousand monkeys on a thousand typewriters. Okay, maybe just two. Today's episode has been sponsored by The Violin Plot, the plot that thinks it's superior to all others, but especially the viola plots, which clearly require no musical plot talent whatsoever. And by Colonel Smoothers, for those times when a captain or lieutenant smoother just isn't enough. And finally, by The Pie Chart, the favorite graphical display of any holiday season. Mmm, I like the Key Lime Pie Chart, or the Boston Cream Pie Chart, or maybe a Banana Cream Pie Chart. This is most definitely not NPR. Or maybe a cherry pie chart. Ooh, I do like cherries, but not when they're too tart. They have to be kind of sweet. Oh, that would be delicious. You know, when they're really just right and then the...